to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue in our studies in the life of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at, or begin, to look at the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher and teacher that ever walked the face of the earth. It's about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not just an idea. It's not a suggestion. It's not a set of rules that we're to follow. A list of rule or a list of do's and don'ts that we are going to make an attempt to do. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement. It's a declaration of what will happen in me when Jesus has changed my character and put in a character like his own. They're called the Beatitudes. They're attitudes that we are to be. That's the Beatitudes. Something we are to be. Not something we do, but things we are to be. The godly character and attitude described here by our Lord Jesus in verses 1 through 12 cannot be done in our own flesh. We can't do these things in our own self-effort, in my own strength, but are worked out in the Christian by the work of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll tell you what I can do. I can be sexually immoral, impure, have lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarrel, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like this. Paul lists all of those in Galatians 5.25. He said, these are the works of the flesh. And those are easy to do. And I did them well before I became a Christian. No effort. It came natural. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now that is a work of the Spirit. It is a supernatural work. Those things I can't do in my own flesh. That's why Jesus told the disciples before he ascended to heaven, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to stay there until you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. Because you see, without that power, they couldn't be witnesses. The things that they would experience, the things that they would go through, they wouldn't be able to deal with unless they had this power. And the word power in the Greek is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's a miraculous power. And it's only because of this dunamis power, this miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, that I'm able to live the Christian life. John G. Butler said, The Sermon on the Mount is the great jewel of all Jesus' teaching written in the Bible. He says, "There There is no portion of the Holy Scriptures for which mankind at large express so great reverence as that which is called the Sermon on the Mount. W. Perkins said of the Sermon on the Mount, it may justly be called the key of the whole Bible because here Jesus opens the sum of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Jesus' sermon emphasizes holy behavior in the clearest possible words. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raised the standard of behavior from what was encouraged by the religious leaders of that day. And wherever Jesus went, he always raised the standard of behavior. But man, on the other hand, he's always trying to lower his standard of behavior to accommodate his depraved desires and behaviors that is to match his lifestyle. He's always trying to lower the standard of behavior to meet the way he's living. The introduction here will give us the important setting for the Sermon on the Mount. And verses 5, 6 through 7 was called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave it on a hillside near Capernaum. And this sermon was probably covered over several days of preaching. And in this sermon, Jesus made known what his attitude was toward the law. Because you see, many thought and do today think that Jesus came to destroy the law, which wasn't true at all. And they say, because today's an age of grace, the law doesn't count anymore. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Position, authority, and money are not important in his kingdom. What really matters is faithful obedience from the heart. So he came to fulfill the Old and the New Testament. So sometimes we read things in the Old Testament, oh, that doesn't matter today. Well, according to Jesus, it does. Because he says, I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Every single word of it. The Sermon on the Mount challenged the proud and legalistic religious leaders of that day. You see, it called them back to the messages of the Old Testament prophets who, like Jesus taught the heartfelt obedience is more important than legalistic observance of the law. Listen to what Jesus said further on in Matthew 5 here in verses 19 through 20. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what he says here. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus placed a premium on doing more than teaching. And he said to the, to the disciples... Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to get to the kingdom of God. Now think of it. The scribes and the Pharisees were the cream of the crop when it came to the religious leaders. They were the cream of the crop when it came to religion and knowing the scriptures and, and, and everything that there was to know about the law. So the disciples must have been shocked when he said, Boy, you're going to need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if you plan on entering the kingdom of God. Notice he raised the bar. And as we read the truths of the Sermon on the Mount, we can see why it's so important. First, it shows us why being born again is absolutely necessary because you cannot meet the, the, the demands of the Sermon on the Mount unless you're born again. The Sermon on the Mount is not the way we get to heaven. It's not how we're saved. Its standards are so high and so difficult to be lived in our own power. 
And it's only those who take on God's own nature through the power of Jesus Christ that can fulfill such demands of the Sermon on the Mount. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount go way beyond those required by the Old Testament law of Jehovah, demanding not only righteous behavior, but also righteous attitudes. Jesus said a man must not just do right, but they must be right. And no part of Scripture shows us more clearly man's desperate situation apart from God. And Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. The religious leaders put the emphasis on the outward, not the inward. In other words, as long as you didn't commit the sin outwardly, you were okay. As long as you didn't commit adultery physically, you're okay. Oh, you could think about it all you want in your heart. Jesus said, uh-uh. The outside needs to match the inside. He said, if you so much as look upon a woman with, the, with, with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or before the law, no, if you, just, if you did it physically, then that was bad. But again, Jesus wanted the outward behavior and the inward behavior to match. That was the high standard of Jesus Christ. Jesus said again, a man must not just do right, but he must be right. No part of Scripture, again, shows clearly how desperate our need is for God. The religious leaders, again, put the the emphasis on the outward, not the inward. But what Jesus is teaching here is that the washing of hands is not not needed uh, like so much as the washing of the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is designed to point the listener to Jesus Christ as being man's only hope for meeting God's standards. And if a man can't live up to God's standards, he needs a supernatural power to enable him. The right response to the sermon leads to Jesus. The right response to the Sermon on the Mount leads to Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount lays out God's blueprint for true happiness and true success. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the standards, the goals, and the incentives that along with God's help will fulfill what God has designed man to be. The Sermon on the Mount is the roadmap to finding the way of joy, peace, and real contentment. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best scriptural resource for witnessing and reaching others for Jesus Christ. A Christian who demonstrates these principles of Jesus, that is, who lives them in their lives, will draw people to them like a moth is drawn to the flame. They will attract others to the Lord who empowers him to live the way he does. And that life that lives in obedience to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is the church's greatest instrument for evangelizing others to Christ. I think the church's biggest enemy against witnessing is the church itself. Because of a superficiality of their Christian life. Lowering the standards of God. Falling short of the call of Christianity. Therefore, the people in the world say, I can live like you without Jesus. Much of the church acts and lives like the world. Why would they want to come to our church? Any church, if we're not living the Christ-like life. Why why would they want to be drawn? 
Again, Jesus said, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, notice, that unless your righteousness, my righteousness, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the life that lives in obedience to the sayings of this sermon is the only life that's pleasing to God and acceptable to God. And that's why it's the believer's greatest reason for following Jesus' Christ's teach, Jesus's teachings, because it pleases God. What other purpose could there be for following Jesus' teaching, if not to please Him? So let's begin now with verses 1 through 2. And Matthew says, And seeing the multitudes, He, Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So it begins here by the words, seeing the multitudes. Seeing the multitudes speaks of the compassion of Jesus. Jesus was always looking out for the multitudes because he was concerned about them. And because he was concerned about them, he had compassion for them wherever they were. Those who were distressed, demon-possessed, the poor, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty the social outcast, or whatever their need was. Jesus cared. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus attracted all levels of people because he loved them. Didn't care who they were, where they were from. Everything Jesus said on this occasion was spoken out in the open. It was spoken in public to to the multitudes, to everyone that would listen. And his goal was to get them to recognize their sin. And then as a result, recognize, hey man, I need a Savior. If these are God's standards, and I can't, I can't you know, achieve them on my own, I need a Savior. I need help. Until, until they believed in Jesus Christ, the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount could only show them how terribly far away they were from even coming close to beating God's standards. And the Sermon on the Mount is designed to get men to see their hopeless condition of sinfulness apart from Christ. Now the word translated seen here in verse 1. The word seen points to more than just seen with your eyes. Your physical eyesight. The word seen here means, means seen with perception, with depth, with the eyes of your heart. You see, Jesus saw and understood the spiritual condition of the people and he wanted to help them be spiritual. He wanted to help them spiritually. So it says, he went up on a mountain and he taught them. He wanted to help them spiritually. How did he do that? He taught them. What did he teach them? The word. His word. He is the word. He's the living word. You see, he saw them more than just people. He saw them as just more as more than just flesh and blood and skin and bones. He saw past the outward man and he saw deep inside their spiritual hearts or their spiritual need, I should say, to give them a spiritual heart. You know, Paul said when it, when, when we became Christians, he said that that Christ died for all. He said, and, and we also believe that we 
we, ha- we have all died to our old life. Jesus died for everyone, Paul says, so that those who receive his new life, they'll no longer live for themselves. Instead, he says, they will live for Jesus Christ who died and was raised for them. And because of that, he said, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, Paul says, we have stopped evaluating people from a human point of view. By the outward man. And because all things are become new, we also see people around us in a new way. We see them as sinners for whom Christ died. We no longer see them as friends or family or enemies or customers or co-workers. We evaluate them. We don't evaluate them based on their education, their race, their finances or their status in society. We see them the way Jesus sees them. Lost sheep who need a shepherd. And when you are driven by the love of Christ, you want to share his love with other people. That's why Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, nor you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. So you see, the Sermon on the Mount was inspired and it was compelled by the compassion that Jesus had for the spiritual needs of the people. And that should also be our motivations for why we teach and preach as well. But it's sad to say, a lot of the motivation for teaching and preaching today involves things like popularity. Oh, I want to say things that will make me popular. Or pride. I'm so, I'm so good at what I do. Or maybe making money at it. And legitimizing sin. A lot of sin is legitimized today. And, and especially deemed legal because it's been deemed legal by the world. You know, abortion is legal by the world standards. But it's far from legal when it comes to God. But many people, well, it's, you know, the, the courts have made it legal, so it's, it must be okay. Uh-uh. We live by a higher standard. Or, you know, they want to preach based on how, uh, how I can keep the people coming. How I can keep the church full. The self-sacrificing compassion of Jesus for the people is seen all through the Gospels. We see some examples of Christ's compassion uh, from the Gospel of Matthew that contains this Sermon on the Mount. But listen to, uh, to Matthew 9.36. It says, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Matthew 14.14, 14, it says, When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. Matthew 15.32 says, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Matthew 20.34 says, Jesus had compassion on them. We need a lot of things in order to be able to teach and preach the word of God. And high on the list of those things that we need is compassion. Compassion for people's spiritual needs. And Jesus gives us that good example. Jesus, who preached the Sermon on the Mount, was the greatest teacher and preacher that ever walked the face of the earth. But teaching and preaching wasn't his main purpose for coming to the earth. 
Jesus' main purpose was to be our Savior. But in his earthly ministry, he did a lot of preaching and teaching, and no one has ever, ever done it as well as he. Jesus, as a teacher, was greater than any and all the prophets or the angels put together. He had infinite knowledge, wisdom, holiness, and truth. Goodness, love, humility, and long-suffering, mercy, and grace. Those are just to mention a few of his, his holy attributes. The prophets and John the Baptist and some of the disciples, they had done a wonderful job in preaching. But our Lord Jesus exceeded them all. His wisdom and perception in teaching and preaching is so obvious in the subjects that he spoke about and in the way that he put them all together. Now, Jesus preached his great sermon on a mountain, thus the title Sermon on the Mount. And it was near the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum. But the location where he taught the Sermon on the Mount uh, teaches us a couple of things. First of all, it teaches and shows us the inconsiderate, inconsiderateness of man. You know, it's pretty sad that, that, that this great sermon, this great preacher of all time, our, our Lord and Jesus Christ, had to preach outside instead of in some nice public place indoors. But just like in other things, it's no different in this situation. Jesus had poor accommodations. He wasn't given some nice, convenient, more suitable place to preach in. Just like it says he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He didn't have a decent place to be born on that first Christmas night. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, oh, they had all the possible comfort, needs, and honor and status. And yet, with all of that ease, comfort, and status, they corrupted the law. But our Lord Jesus, the great teacher of truth, he's made to go out into the desert. He doesn't find a, a, any better place than a mountain to preach his great sermon on. And it was the corrupt scribes, Pharisees, and Sanhedrin who had the temple and other impressive gathering places for their meetings. But Jesus was forced outside to the humble surroundings of the mountains, the hills, and the valleys. It's always been this way. Oh, the great cathedrals and glass structures and elaborate designs and buildings, huge sports stadiums are seldom places where the gospel is truly preached. The message of God's word is often proclaimed in humble surroundings. While the wicked ones have the nice, influential, impressive places to spread their evil messages. This reflects the inconsiderateness of man in rejecting the message of God. God's message seldom gets the honor on earth that it's due and it deserves. In preaching his great sermon on the mount, Jesus gives us a comparison of the relationship between Moses on the mountain and Jesus on the mountain. Jesus preached his sermon on a mountain just like Moses did on Mount Sinai where the law was given, which was a serious declaration of the Christian law. But again, check out the difference. When the law was given to Moses, the Lord came down onto the mountain. But here, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord went up to the mountain. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, the people were ordered to keep their distance, to stay away. But here they're invited to come, to draw near. There were no bounds set around this mountain. 
Because through Jesus Christ and only Jesus do we have access to God. Not only to speak to God, but to hear God. The grace of the gospel brings us close to God where the law drove us away from God. Now let's take a look at the people who were part of the multitude, who made up the multitude. We're going to look at the people who heard this great sermon that Jesus preached. Think of it, what, what truly blessed, privileged people they were who got to go up to the mountain to hear the Sermon on the Mount preached. What a privilege for the people in that day to hear the master teacher in person pe- preach this great sermon. But did they really understand what a significant blessing they were experiencing when Jesus gave them the Sermon on the Mount? When he gave it to them, they most definitely did not. You see, one of the terrible habits we have is failing to appreciate the spiritual privileges that we've been given. Even today, even though today we're not privileged to hear Or to experience this great blessing of hearing the Sermon of the Mount preached in person by Jesus. But you know what? We have the great privilege of having this great sermon in our own hands by way of the Bible to read it and to study it. Now we have some privileges today that those who heard the sermon uh, preached then by Jesus didn't have. Again, we can study it as much as we want, as long as we want, and in as much great detail as we want. They couldn't. They had better have been good listeners because when Jesus spoke it, it was over. So when it comes to spiritual privilege, we we really can't complain. We might not have had the privilege of, again, hearing Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. But we do have the great privilege of having the sermon written and in our position by way of the Bible. Then verse 1 says, he was seated. I'm sorry, it says, when he, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, when it speaks about his disciples, it means more than just the twelve. It speaks of all of those disciples who truly followed him with a great deal of dedication. And out of this group came the twelve and the seventy, who were later commissioned to go out two by two to witness for Christ. The dedication of the disciples is especially emphasized in the words, came to him. They came to him. The word disciples means learners. It means those who are taught. And here they were serious and sincere learners, which is obvious because they came to him. And because they did, and because they came to him, it would really pay off for them. Because those who earnestly seek the Lord will be rewarded with spiritual learning that will result in spiritual blessings. He is a rewarder. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But if you don't study and you don't read the Bible and you don't come to church much, You can't blame anybody but yourself for your spiritual failures and your weaknesses, for not being able to be more than conquerors, for not being able to to rise above your trials and tribulations, and for them overwhelming you. It says they came to him. 
Where do you go in those difficult times? They came to him, which is a basic requirement if you're going to learn and grow spiritually. You have to be interested. You have to be earnest. You have to be sincere. You have to be honest if you're going to experience spiritual growth and blessing. Now, those were the disciples that made up those that truly followed him. These were the disciples that made up the consecrated and devoted part of this huge multitude who followed Jesus. But then there were the curiosity seekers. You always have them. The curious part of the crowd. In Matthew 7, 28, they're called the people. There were disciples, the true followers, and then there were the people who were there just for curiosity's sake. They made up the larger part of the crowd. They followed him for the goodies that they might get from him. We're always looking for goodies from Jesus. More than what we need, the spiritual parts. They followed him for what they might get from him. And these were the large part of the group who followed Jesus, not because they were loyal followers, uh, uh, you know, or sincere, but out of curiosity. You see, what they really liked was the miracles. They were very entertaining. A lot of ooing and aahing going on. That's all they were concerned about. But the teaching ministry of Jesus wasn't their favorite times with him. It wasn't their thing. Now, even though they did pay a lot of attention to what he taught and to his teaching, and they did only because, you see, what he taught and the way he taught was so different than the religious leaders in both doctrine, that is what he taught, and in his delivery, how he taught. Because, you see, the, the, the religious leaders of that day, they usually quoted some rabbi. Well, according to rabbi so-and-so, he said this. Or some other, te- you know, they were always quoting something that had already been said, but it was like, you know, they were just passing that on. But Jesus taught them and told them things they never heard before. And in the way he taught them, they recognize he's not like the others. He's different. We've never heard these things taught before. Now, out of this multitude that followed Jesus, some people were saved. Many were saved. And they became followers of Christ. But a lot more of them, little by little, slowly just disappeared. Faded away, never to be seen again. Because you see, Jesus was telling them things they didn't like to hear. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They turned away from Jesus when he started to preach things that was too hitting too close to home. Things were too hard for them to take. There are still a lot of people this way in churches all over. Oh, they'll come and and they'll enjoy the music and they'll enjoy some of the messages until those messages start to hit home. Then they leave. But then there are many preachers who will tweak their messages and programs to make the fickle crowd happy so that they'll have good numbers and they'll stay. 
But I like what one man said. Jesus was more interested in those he could count on rather than in those he could only count. Then it says in verse 1 that Jesus, it says, when he was seated. Sitting down to teach was the traditional way of, of, of doing things in those days. This was the common way of teaching the Jews, which followed in his earthly, uh, which he followed in his earthly ministry. This was a common thing. Sitting down in this setting spoke of authority, which helps us to understand better what is meant when Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And it's worth mentioning that after Jesus finished his sermon on the mount, Matthew 7, 29 says the crowd said he taught them like one having authority, not as the scribes. Jesus is to be the Lord and the master of our lives. And when he speaks, it's his voice that we listen to. The voice of authority that is speaking. There are a lot of voices speaking to us today in the world who claim to be authorities. Big names, big titles. But they're speaking many, many ungodly things. But Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Listen to him. The Father said in Matthew 17, 5, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. Then in verse 2 it says, Then he opened his mouth. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker to preach. Eloquence isn't what is being taught here in this verse, but it's about the simplicity and the clearness of the message. A.W. Pink said this, The first essential of any public speaker is that he open his mouth and articulate clearly. Otherwise, no matter how good may be his matter, much will be lost on his hearers. And sadly enough, how many preachers shout and use hand gestures and move around the pulpit and, and take attention away from the word of God and draw it upon themselves. It's absolutely necessary that the preacher should spare no effort and do whatever he needs to give a free and clear delivery to the message. Speaking clearly, that is speaking the truth with a lot of courage. God does not want preachers who double talk, who talk out of both sides of their mouth to avoid taking a clear stand one way or on the other. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6, 19. He said to the people, ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. He said, pray that I will speak boldly to the people. A.W. Pink said this regarding what Paul said in Ephesians 6, 19. He said, Paul was referring to a special kind of speech upon far more weighty manners than his uh, ordinary conversation. So when we're told here that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, we are to understand that he spoke with liberty and authority, with faithfulness and boldness, delivering himself upon matters of the deepest weight and greatest importance. It means that without fear or favor, Jesus openly spoke forth the truth, no matter what the consequences. And I love what A.W. Tozer said. A.W. Tozer said, Do we modify God's word in our behavior to attract more adherence? 
and suffer the consequences? Or do we preserve the word and our behavior and go with God and let God be responsible for the consequences? There's a lot of double talk day. We've learned how to, how to make sin more palatable. Even in the church. Especially in society. Here's some of the double talk that we hear out there right now. Taxes are now called revenue enhancement. Potholes are pavement deficiencies. People are no longer bald. They are follicularly deprived. And this, here's a story that's, that's sad but, but true. Listen. Hospital technicians gave a fatal dose of nitrous oxide to a mother about to deliver and killed both the mother and the child. They called the tragedy a therapeutic misadventure. Poor people are now uh, called fiscal underachievers, and soldiers no longer kill the enemy. They service the target. David was right when he wrote in Psalm 12, too. They speak idly to one another with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. And in the church, we've learned to do the same thing. Lust is no longer lust. It's sex addiction, a sexual addiction. Drunkenness is no longer drunkenness. It's a disease. We've learned to legitimize sin. We've learned to change it from what God says it is to something that makes it more acceptable and palatable in society and in the church. So to speak up and speak clearly and speak boldly when proclaiming the truth of God's word, it takes boldness. Then verse 2 says Jesus taught them. He didn't entertain them. He didn't give them a bunch of stories. A bunch of information to just store in their heads. He gave them truth to guide their living. A lot of sermons today don't teach. They don't instruct. They might entertain. They might make people laugh. But they don't teach doctrine. And praise the Lord for Pastor Tony's class who's teaching doctrine. These kinds of sermons might be fun. They might be popular. But they don't do any good for anybody. The word taught here. Where it says Jesus taught them. The word taught... According to uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon, it involves instruction and also exhortation. Listen to, the, to Thayer's Greek lexicon a definition of the word taught. It means to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them of, the, of those who enjoin upon others to observe some precept. Here, it means that a person is not only taught the right way, but exhorted to do right. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only explained, but made application. He not only explained, but he exhorted. Jesus' teaching wasn't just for information. It was meant for transformation. This is the only way to proclaim God's word, God's spiritual truth. And there's two, two opinions about the Sermon on the Mount. 
the application of the Sermon on the Mount. One opinion says the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us today. Others say it does apply today. We believe that Jesus planned for it to apply, uh, uh, planned for it to apply, uh, that it means, uh, I'm sorry, we believe that Jesus planned for it to apply, that it means to apply to us today. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Do you say it has nothing to do with us? Why, it has everything to do with us. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount, men would know that there is a dynamic in the Christian gospel. And a significant reason for applying the, the Sermon on the Mount for today is there is no teaching to be found in the Sermon on the Mount, which not, is not also based in the New Testament epistles. The very things that are taught in the Sermon on the Mount we, found, we find taught in the New Testament epistles. All epistles are meant for Christians today. So if their teaching is also the same as that of the Sermon on the Mount, then clearly its teaching is also meant for Christians today. And then there are those who reject the Sermon on the Mount saying, well, you know what, uh, it, it, because it, it teaches a different way of salvation. Some think that the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the way to be saved. That if you follow the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be saved. And they say it, it, it teaches salvation different than the Gospel of Calvary. Well, understand this. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell us how to be saved it tells us how we are to live after we are saved. In studying how the Sermon on the Mount is put together, it can be said that the Beatitudes, especially the first seven, are the foundation for the sermon, and the rest of the sermon is the structure of the foundation. So we see in it a logical order in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes, especially the first seven, belong at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and not just at the end. Like the Ten Commandments belong at the beginning of the law and not the end because they give the basic principles for all the law. In closing, in studying the message of the Sermon on the Mount, it is very clear that it puts the emphasis on the practical practical Christian living. Matthew Henry says, there is not much of the credenda of Christianity in it, that is, the things to be believed, but it is wholly taken up with the agenda, the things to be done. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the standard of behavior for the Christian. And as you see, the way many Christians live today it would greatly disapprove of today's behavior of the Christian. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful sermon, Lord, and we've only been for the, in the first two verses. Father, I do pray that, God, we would humble ourselves and that, Father, we would look at ourselves through your eyes, God. Lord, that we would measure ourselves by your word, by your standards, God. Not by the person next to us, in front of us, or behind us, Lord. Not by anybody else, but only you. For you are the standard, Lord. You are the rule. You're the, mo you're the model. You're the pattern that we are to follow. <clears throat> so, 
So, Lord, may we come in humility, Father, and look into the law of liberty, as James says, and continue in it. And, be, and not be for forgetful hearers, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. For the one who does these things will be blessed. And maybe you're here this morning and you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Because you can't live a life of power and holiness and sinlessness apart from God. You're not getting victory over the sins in your life. As hard as you might try to change on your own, you you can't do it. And if you do it, it will only be for a little while. But Jesus defeated all enemies, all sin, when he died on the cross. It took the shed blood of Christ to cleanse us of all sin. The Holy Spirit within to lead us, to guide us, to give us victory, strength over all sin. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you recognize your great need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.